when you talk to them, they look you right in the eye, and it's like a piercing look, like, of course we stay on scene. And I realized, I said, I just taught my five-year-old how to run a code. We're not telling you to use a different drug or give it a different way. We're telling you to change your mindset so that the way you treat a child is the same way mentally that you treat an adult so you can be in the zone. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. In this episode, I talk to the man I wish I had met before my first pediatric calls. His name is Dr. Peter Antevi, and he's asking medics to do a complete rethink about how we take care of kids. His bio is full of innovation awards and accolades for his approach to pediatrics and emergency medicine, but he'd never tell you that. Instead, if you sat down with him, he'd ask you about your pediatric calls, and he'd work to understand how you think on those calls. Like me, he shares a fascination for the psychology of medics. He's an EMS medical director and a big picture thinker whose ideas are bringing relief to the pediatric beast in EMS. He's a disruptor in a good way. We sat down at the inaugural Flightbridge Ed Symposium, where I grabbed him after I saw him on stage. He was advocating that we should absolutely be treating kids like adults. You heard that right. The old saying that kids are not just little adults, that saying is out and Dr. Peter Antevi is in. He's going to help you get in the pediatric zone. Join me as he made my day with this visit. Dr. Antevi, thank you. You just spoke. Did you have time to pee? Uh, Not yet. I'm like a camel. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your talk earlier. I cried during it. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) I cry almost every time when I give that talk, so yeah. The part that spoke to me the most, you were talking about, and I wrote down his name, Lieutenant Jonathan Robbins. Mm -hmm. I was crying for him, but really it was a little bit of self-pity. I was crying for myself because um, I had the same story. I think a lot of medics do. I mean, it was so identical to my story of a pediatric arrest, law enforcement, baby in arms, you know, walking quickly towards your ambulance. You kind of cue into their pace and that they're bringing you this baby mm-hmm. and you're like oh i must be going somewhere with mm-hmm. this baby i don't even know what on scene time we documented i don't know that i actually even got out of the ambulance mm-hmm. i may have i think i remember taking the baby we got in the back of the ambulance put him on the stretcher luckily the the parents kind of chased us down somebody opened the back doors i got a very short story i got to wait and maybe a little bit of uh, allergies meds, Mm -hmm. and that's it. We immediately went en route. On that day, I had three people, on the me and two other medics on the truck, so there was another person in the back with me. We did a few things on the way to the uh, hospital, Mm -hmm. Um, but that was the reflex. That was my very first pediatric arrest, and I remember one of my mentors saying, like, why'd you you leave scene? Mm -hmm. And this this medic, uh, his name's Andrew Branco, he had it dialed in. I was like, oh, right, why did I leave scene? He's like, you wouldn't have left with an adult. Correct. That's one of your central messages. Yeah. Why is it important to stay on scene? Yeah, so I guess the, the question is, where, where did that come from? Where did that let's leave come from? You know, EMS education is, is I think, very deep-rooted in this theory of children are different. 
so ever since you were in paramedic school, ever since I was in medical school, ever since I was in residency in, in Los Angeles, we were told from day one, we were indoctrinated that children, that kids are different. When you're in the field and you're work, a working paramedic and you roll up to these scenes, your brain is already telling you they're different. And then you become different. And that's where the danger lies right there. When you are telling yourself a story that is untrue, that's when your level of care and the way that you normally operate completely goes off the rails and you start to do something different. And other people may not know it, but you know it. So you, as a provider that day, knew that what you did wasn't right. Your subconscious mind knows it. And therefore, it'll never leave you. So you, you can't explain that to yourself in any way to make yourself feel better. That's what I've learned because I've made a lot of mistakes myself. And I remember in paramedic school, it was written on a slide. Kids are not just little adults. But they didn't tell me what kids are. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking, well, what the hell are they? Are they just something to be afraid of? Are they mm -hmm. some foreign alien? Mm -hmm. Tell me what they are. And I think what they were saying is the physiology is different. That's not the message I, I heard as a, as a novice. You're on a mission to tell people, treat them like adults. In the emergency profession that we're in, listen, if someone's got a, you know, has rare arrhythmia, you have brugada, you have long QT, yeah, they have to be at a children's hospital with with experts, right? But if someone's got uh, SVT, hypoglycemia, seizure, cardiac arrest, the principles for all of the treatment are the same. Uh, let's call it the core principles. Yeah, there are some nuances for pediatrics that we should all learn, but we shouldn't learn them in a different course. We should learn them in sync with what we're learning for the adults. That may seem very nuanced, but it's very important because if you're a student and you're being instructed that this is something called SVT. This is how we treat it. doesn't matter if you're a zero or a hundred. And then here are the nuances for the pediatric patient. When you leave, you feel the same about those two patient populations. We have to kind of change the root of how the education is being uh, forwarded to our, our, our students. And you said something I'd never heard till just a few minutes ago. This idea it was a complete reframe for me. I've never even thought to question the idea that we're splitting up ACLS and POWs, and your concept is that they could be taught in tandem. Yes, it's the same course, right? So if, if you look at the course, how it's set up, again, the nuances are important, right? When you're an adult, you put the, the, the roll under the head, and the child, because the occiput is so large, you put it under the shoulder. The airway, you have to know all the issues, the tongue, um, when, you're, when you're intubating, what have you, you need to know all, that thing, all those things. But there's a way of doing it at the same time. Splitting up that information in your mind is not a healthy thing. It's very subtle, but now that we have a lot of experience changing and we can go back to those providers and we can see the data now coming back to see the outcomes. It used to be me just at the top of a mountain with a bullhorn saying, you know, listen to me, we have to do this, right? Uh, now there's data and there's data coming from, from elsewhere, not, not from me. Uh, showing that the outcomes can change if you change the behavior a little bit. It's not We're not changing the medicine. We're not telling you to use a different drug or give it a different way. We're telling you to change your mindset so that the way you treat a child is the same way mentally that you treat an adult so you can be in the zone. So you could be like a Navy SEAL yeah. at all times rather than feeling like you're a Navy SEAL on the adult and that you're incompetent on the child, which is what happens to 
you know, 99% of providers today. And what happened to me for a lot of my career, to be honest. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. It is a critical reframe, this mindset of, of the resuscitationist. And that's, that's why I wanted to have you. I'm so pleased to have you because I'm, my main mission with the podcast is I interview medics, especially in, the, in their earlier years about, you know, some of their pitfalls or struggles, things that they're going through. So other people coming along can kind of normalize their experiences and what they all say. Because I, I have a question where I ask, you know, what's, tell me the, paint a picture of the worst call you could paint up for yourself. It's peds. Mm-hmm. It's almost become cliche. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in medication errors. Can you describe your pediatric dosing system to somebody just assume they've never heard of what the Hantevi method is? Mm-hmm. The best way to explain it is to think of how you think of an adult when adult is, is having uh, anaphylaxis. And in your mind, you automatically know I've got to give epi one to one, one to a thousand, which is one milligram per ml, and I have to give 0.3 to 0.5, right? So when you're treating the adult, you know the age of the adult, now you know the, the thing you're treating, and these medications come into your head, and just think of that process of how do you get to a syringe with an IM needle on it right before you jab into the lateral thigh. So that, that process, if whoever's listening here can think through, just close your eyes and think through how they would do that, right? Now, if I told you a two-year-old was in anaphylaxis, getting from that statement into having a syringe with an IM needle on it and get, getting ready to give that child the right dose for most people is a very difficult thing. So they're going to say to me, okay, I need the weight. Okay, it's 12 kilos. Now what? Okay, now let me, uh, let me see. The dose is uh, 0.01 per kilo. Okay, good. What's that? 0.12. And, and all of a sudden you're going through these several other hoops. Okay. Now for the adult, you didn't do that. But for pediatrics, we made you do that. So what we've developed is a way that you go from age, 65-year-old anaphylaxis, to a dose and a volume, to a two-year-old anaphylaxis. So and again, an age, right to the volume. We're going to remove all the system to all the, what's the weight, what's the dose, what's this, what's that, and enable you as a provider, as an EMS professional, to get on scene and say, two-year-old anaphylaxis, and then someone serves up the dose to you on a silver platter that says it's 0.12 mLs IM. Medication dosing errors occur in that little gap that we talked about from the moment you hear the age until you're actually giving the drug. Now, when you're in a course of some kind, they may say cardiac arrest at 0.01 per kilo. I bet, great, great check. But getting to that point and getting the syringe, so... What we realize is that if you're going to come through one of our courses and we're going to say a drug, you are going to draw that drug up. Yeah, we do that too at my college. Right. And it's a source of great consternation, and I want to, I want to teach them the way you're doing it. So what are, you, what are you doing? I'll start by saying that hospital medicine and EMS medicine is different from one main reason, is that in EMS we have protocols. Uh, I'm a medical director for several agencies, and when I became a medical director in 2010, they said, hey, doc, we have a set of protocols Whatever you put in here will do. In the hospital, it's not like that. Every doctor can do something. It's whatever comes into our heads we can, we can do. There's no protocol. So in EMS, it's much more standardized, much better. But when you go from one city and you cross into the next city, those protocols change. So for example, you may use morphine. I use fentanyl. You use fentanyl at 0.5 per kilo intranasal. I use it at 2 
mics per kilo intranasal. So there's a lot of variation. You, you, you carry midazolam one milligram per ml, I carry it five in one. My medical director wants me to give it uh, intramuscular, this one wants to give it IV. If you think of all those scenarios I just gave you, or even a better one, my favorite drug, ketamine, you carry it 100 in one, 50 milligrams per ml, or 10 milligrams in ml. You wanna give it for pain, you wanna give it for RSI, or maybe a different dose for sedation. All those variables, which are concentration, the dose of the drug, and the route of the drug, all those things will make an effect on what the final volume is that you're using for that child. We have created a process, and it's software that we built, basically, uh, from scratch. It takes an EMS protocol. Even though it it may not be different in like a dramatic way, it's different in those very subtle ways. We take that protocol, and we have a clinical team that actually helps that agency build their book in our software. And when I say build the book, we go from two kilos all the way to adults, so it includes adults and kids. And essentially, when you're on a call of a one-year-old, you go to the one-year-old page in the book, or now we have an app, and you click on one-year-old, and then there's all the volume sitting right in front of you. So that two-year-old anaphylaxis, you would go to two, you would look at Epi, one to 1,000 IM, which is, again, right from your protocol customized, and I would say 0.12 ml. That process of creating that type of customization, not in a generic way of customization where you can say, oh, you just select the concentration that you may have that day. No, we actually go to the next level and say, this is, the, this is what you have, and this is what it shows. And tomorrow, when your ketamine comes in at 50 and 1 instead of 101, that gets modified. And so it's a very fluid thing. I'm not just going to give you something and say, Ginger, here's the tool. It'll work forever. Uh, it won't. So we have a very close relationship with all of the agencies who use us, all the hospitals. And uh, just the other day, someone said, we don't have Epi 1 to 10,000 anymore. So we got into the app, and then we put a little note there that says, take 1 ml of 1 to 1,000, add it to 9 ml of normal saline, and voila, you have now made 1 in 10,000 out of 1 to 1,000. Sure, most people maybe listening may know that, but when, when you know what's hitting the fan and you need it and you don't know it, well, we give it to you. So it's been a labor of love. It's taken us years to get to a point where as the user, you don't feel like you're, you're clicking through five screens to get through the, to the drug you need. It's all there on one screen. And something you said that was, uh, it sounds kind of unique to your approach is I'm used to thinking of kids in weights or lengths with the tape. You're talking about age. Why, why the difference? We do both because I think that a length-based tape um, is, is an important thing. And I think Dr. Braslow gets immense credit and Bob Luton as well, who, who, who I don't think gets a lot of the credit, but he, he deserves it too. Using length is a fairly accurate way of getting to the drug. But, and here's the big but, when you have to use a length-based tape to actually do the work, there's only one place you can use a length-based tape. And where is that? It's at the patient's side. And they have to be supine. And- Correct. Yeah. So, and so, so basically, in the adult, you're at the station, wherever you are, and you hear 65-year-old anaphylaxis. At that instant, your brain says, epi, 1 to 1, 0.3 to 0.5, cyamedrol, 125 and 2, benadryl, 50 and 1, done. And as you're going to the scene, you're saying to yourself, 0.3 mLs of that, 2 mLs of that, and 1 mL of that. And then you're thinking through what else it could be. And with the length-based tape, you're taking that entire six to eight minutes, your time to scene, you're removing that. You're just cutting it out. So now you're arriving on the scene. Imagine 
when the doors of the ambulance are opening up and parents are expecting this confident paramedic and all they see is basically someone who has the fear of God in them. And then not only are you fearful, but now you have to pull out your card using a length-based tape. And then there's a math calculation that has to come after that usually. So all those steps, they're not a physical problem. It's it's more of an emotional problem. So if you're not ready to treat that child on scene effectively before you get to the scene, you will not treat that child effectively. Starting the dosing before you get to the scene is the most important thing that we can do. It's just one part of the pre-arrival preparation, but it's a major part of it. And it's what psychologists have called cognitive offloading. Like you're taking it off of having to think it through on the call and you're just pre-programming it, writing it down, whatever. I love it. Yeah. And again, our system has a length-based tape. I would say that the medics who use our system probably use it 5% of the time. And studies showed in EMS that they were rarely using the length-based tape anyway. Of course they weren't. You know, I work with over 2,000 paramedics, and they, they confide. They, they tell me that, Doc, I'm not going to pull that out in front of mom and dad. I'd more, much rather just take the kid, run to my place of safety, close the door, right, yep. and then treat the kid there in the back of the ambulance. What that does may make some people feel better, meaning the provider and the mother or father, but it doesn't do anything good for the kid. So we really have to kind of turn this around and say, if we can teach medics to be confident, comfortable, give them this cognitive offloading tool, and then look confident, feel confident, confident, then they'll actually stay on scene and they'll treat children the way that we treat adults. I was talking to Corey Ricketson. Love Corey. Ricketson, yes. Ricketson. Yes, Mm ma'am. He said that the medics in your departments are hungry. Like They want these calls Mm -hmm. now. They want to show their stuff. I love when people come visit you know, South Florida because it's almost a, um, maybe not uh, hard to believe that it's true, but it's a, it's a breath of fresh air for people. When they go and talk to my captains, my lieutenants, uh, my district captains up in Palm Beach County, when, when you talk to them, they look you right in the eye and it's like a piercing look like, of course we stay on scene. Remember, this takes time, right? So it's not like you're gonna come through a class and we, like we did a four hour class here yesterday. Um, I, t- I told everyone in there, it's going to take you different times, but maybe months, six months, or maybe three or four calls until you actually utilize these principles that kind of make sense what we're telling people to do. So it's not like we have to force people to do this, by the way. But after four, five, six regular calls, you know, the kid needs Zofran, and all of a sudden you're looking at the mom and you're holding her hand and say, it's going to be okay. We know what to do. I know what's going on. Give me 90 seconds. I'm going to give your child some fentanyl for their broken arm. All of a sudden, they leave that scene saying, you know what? I made an impact because I saw how the mother said thank you or the kid got better or I gave them a hug when I was done. It's, it's kind of the process of what I call uh, getting to closure, which is really something that me personally, I've, I've been working really hard on, on for myself. Um, you can get to closure on every single call that you do by actually circling back around to the family member that you're helping and reconnecting with them at the end and saying, you know, hope everything gets better. But when you're able to go back to mom and dad, look them in the eye and give them that final goodbye or explain to them exactly what you were doing the whole time, that says one thing about you as a provider, that you felt comfortable with your own self. That's the magic moment where you can get closure. Yeah. That took me a long time to figure out that 
you can't get closure unless you know that you've done it right. I remember the family coming to the hospital where I took this baby. Well, first of all, I I could share a lot about that call. One is the ER doc said to me, and rightfully so, in anger, he said, you basically just brought me a a dead baby. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I did. That didn't help with closure at all. <laughs> I was going to say, I probably wouldn't have done that. Uh, yeah, it, but, but, it, it's, yeah, it's still in there, you know. That interaction was very negative. And I wish we could have had a longer talk because I'm sure what he wanted to say was, could you have just worked the baby on scene? Right, right. except, and maybe I'll help you a little bit here, is that you can't take the blame here because it, it's a systematic error here. The fault is in the system. And the system is you were trained that kids are different, you weren't given the same type of training as you as you were for the adult. They gave you some tools that didn't work, and you knew they didn't work. And and so the expectation of yourself, because remember I said people are most critical of their of themselves. So you being very self critical, like we all are, are putting the blame on yourself for that. So the doctor shouldn't be blaming you, right? So I'll just give you another quick example. When a paramedic gives amiodarone instead of Benadryl to a child who's in anaphylaxis. Whose fault is that? So that just, just kind of ponder that real quick. When the Benadryl and amiodarone vials looked exactly the same, and they had the same gray cap on them, and you go back to your superior at the station and say, hey, uh, chief, I, I screwed up. I just gave uh, amiodarone instead of Benadryl. What should the response be of that person? Uh, many of us know of this thing called just culture, I learned it from a great man. Um, I've heard, first heard it from a great man in uh, uh, Missouri. His name is um, uh, Mark Alexander. And then basically it's going back and looking what the root cause. So what is the root cause of, of, of that doctor's emotion? It's not you, right? You, you are, you're a product of what, what happened to you. So the, the answer to, to fix what happened to you, which is what happens to a lot of people, is to go back and actually go back to the root of that and change it. And that's really what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think you're being successful. And going back to the just culture, you talked about that your medics confide in you. Mm-hmm. I think that's clear that you're interested in improving the system. Yeah. You're looking at a kind of more step back view. Yeah. I look back at the last kind of five years of my life. I just happen to kind of latch on to really big problems. Sometimes I just seek very clear answers. And like, like, for example, stroke, um, mobile integrated health, pediatrics. For me, these answers seem very simple and clear. When I start these things, I don't recognize that it's really a big problem. I'm a very simple thinking person. If things are very complicated to me, I just don't understand them. If I can process something and make it feel easy, and they're not hard solutions to implement, then why don't we do it, right? And so, yeah, I, I do agree. I'm, a, I'm definitely realized about myself recently that I'm more of a big picture thinker. Yeah, we need guys like you. And I saw the results of, you're saying you um, think kind of simply and you want things to be simple and not complex. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it should be in all of emergency medicine Mm -hmm. when possible. I just watched a video of your kids (laughs) calculating drug doses beside your pool Mm -hmm. in your presentation. That's cool. Yeah. That was a special day for me when I'm in the back of the I'm, my son's in his car seat. He was five at the time. Now that he's eleven, he's you know he's a cerebral kind of kid. But Jordan, you know he he says he says Dad, I want to learn that because he he saw that at, you know my wife who's really the brains behind all this stuff. She helped me make this little badge buddy. And anyway, so he's like, I want to learn that. So as we were going to school every day, I said, I said, repeat after me. 
one, three, five, seven, nine. He's like, one, three, five, you know, and then I said 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. We got that down pat. And then um, I taught him just to move the decimal place one. And he, he had no idea what kilograms was. So he was saying in the early videos, he says, pilograms. It was so cute. <laughs> that is too cute. And I realized, I said, I just taught my five-year-old how to run a code. Because uh, it wasn't just epi. We taught him amiodarone. We taught him atropine. We taught him bicarb, dextrose, normal saline. And so we take him to, take him to the station at five years of age or six years of age. One of my medics would come up and... And I'd say, hey, Jordan, one-year-old, he's like, one cc, three or 1.5 cc's. That's when it finally hit me that a five-year-old can do it. Why, why shouldn't we all be able to do this? But believe it or not, you know, we've been doing this for eight years now, and it still takes convincing. It still takes me to go around this country to talk about this, to convince people that we have to do it differently. It's pretty amazing how healthcare turns in a very slow fashion. It's like a glacier. It is. Hmm. Uh, and it seems like, at least from my perspective, when I heard someone was doing it easier, I was like, I want to be in the same room with this person, and I want to share this message because um, medics are suffering. And you talk a lot about patient outcomes and the families of these patients, mm-hmm. but my focus is really the quality of life and the career span and mm-hmm. having happy medics. It's such a simple mission, and I think pediatrics... And this kind of having to do system two thinking and just like we're set up for failure, I think that is, it's hurting us. It is. It's hurting us. It's a silent killer because, you know, I showed that picture of uh, Chief David Dangerfield from Indian River in Florida. He was the fire chief. He saw bad things. He saw lots of children die. The reason he killed himself was because he felt like some of that was his fault. Like he couldn't get that kid back, so it was his fault. He became the fire chief, and now 27 years later is when he killed himself. This is silent because you would look at him and you would know him, and the people who did tell me he was one of the nicest and greatest people you'll ever meet, a great educator. Uh, so his name will always live on in greatness. Um, but the fact that over time he took his own life, it, you know, everyone listening to this podcast today needs to know that they have a three times higher rate of suicide. You said you have a lot of younger people listening to this podcast. What they don't recognize is if they don't uh, recognize that this is an issue today, in 10 years, in 15 years, and that's kind of what's happened to me. It's become, the burden has become heavier for me uh, after every shift, after every call, after every case I review, after every family I speak to, uh, the burden I, I realize now is heavier because the responsibility now is, is heavier. And I want to save everybody's life. Uh, and I want my medics to save it. And, and uh, as a pre-hospital professional, there's a very big burden and there's a very big price to pay if, and this is the major point, if we don't focus on getting people to closure. It's not about the weight, it's not about the dose, and it's not about the app you have. It's about, does that entire circle from the tones going off until you say goodbye to the family, is it whole? If there's holes in that circle, then you're going to have a big problem in your career. And by holes, you mean that the person perceives that they didn't do well in that part? So there's many holes, right? So that if you look at the circle, it starts in the pre-arrival phase, right? So you hear the tones go off at the station, two-year-old cardiac arrest. You're in route. During that in route segment, that quadrant, if you don't feel like you're ready or able to get ready, then that part of the quadrant is, doesn't exist, right? And then you get to the on-scene. How are you performing? Did I stay? Did I do everything I could? You're self-critical. 
most of the time the answer is no. So that part of that quadrant is missing. Then you do the debrief, which doesn't help, missing. Then you get to the closure part, where you try to kind of put it all together, seal it up, and put it in the part of your brain that says, great job, but you can't, because no one's ever taught you how to get to closure, or what closure means. So what do you do? You put on your game face, and you go back to the station, and someone says, hey, you need any help? No, I'm doing okay, or maybe let's talk about it. And you talk about it, but there's no getting back your own feeling about how you performed before you got there on scene and when you left the ER and you turned your head the other way when the mother's sitting to your right and you look to the left and you walk away. I did that many years. Horrible, right? And you know it's horrible and I know it's horrible, but the only only way that you can turn your head the right way and go right, make a beeline to the family is if you know that quadrant one, check, I was ready. Quadrant two, I did everything I could, check. Debrief, I don't need it. I went to the mother, closure, done. Good or bad, you can get to closure. That's the circle. Getting through that circle to the end takes practice and takes um, tools that allow you to not have to think about getting to closure. If I can put you in a position where quadrant one and quadrant two are always gonna be good, beautiful, and then I have to teach you a little bit how to get to closure, which is what we do in our class, then you go back into the field and the next call you try it, and the next call you try it. And all of a sudden, six months later, when we started this conversation, you said that my medics you know, feel that way. Yeah, because now, over months, after doing it wrong a few times and getting better and trying a different way, they all individually now are getting to closure. Not, they're not all there, I'm not gonna say that, but um, the ones who care enough to try are there, and it's made a very big impact on them. So I always say, and maybe people take this the wrong way, but it's not about the kid. It's about the provider. Because if I can make you a great provider, the kid and the family are going to do wonderful. Right. It, it's not about the kid. It's about you, which is very important. Mm-hmm. I think we have to kind of think through that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's what we focus on. We focus on the provider, mm-hmm. 100%. I don't know if this is true or not, but when I first started teaching AEDs, it was told to me, I taught for the Red Cross. This has been mm-hmm. two decades ago. It's hard to believe I'm that old already. Um, I'm right there with you. I was told that... During the initial trials of, of AEDs and the devices, they made sure very young people could operate an AED, and they, they were teaching Boy Scouts, and they picked it right up, and it's because they're two buttons. Yeah, but it's, it's really two main ones. Turn it on, and then some don't even, some are just fully automatic. Mm-hmm. They just will, you turn it on, and then once you put it on, it just does the rest. And some will say, actually, push this button, this blinking yellow light to shock. Yeah. So, right. I wish every device or every system was created like that, mm-hmm. with that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I saw your sons working through these problems so quickly, I was like, that reminds me of when we taught AEDs to, you know, 10-year-old Boy Scouts. You know, what's funny is that the little 13579 thing is what I kind of taught myself. And then for years, I was going around the country teaching this little thing. And there's not a week that doesn't go by where I don't get a phone call, an email, a text, where someone says, I was on a call, and I remember the 13579, and I, when I got there, I was ready, and I did something great. And then we saved a lot. We got ROSC. And you know, now we have an app and software, and it kind of feels more complicated. But the very basic of it's simple, it's easy, your brain understands it, and you can become an expert in really minutes. It's just a, it's a powerful thing for me. I don't know. It's really cool. I love it. This is an audio podcast, but I wish people could see me smiling because it feels <laughs> so good. I'm bringing relief. It's bringing relief to a hell of a lot of suffering mm-hmm. uh, for medics. 
Um, so I have a group on Facebook, and I told them I was going to get to talk to a pediatrician. I didn't spill the beans on who it was, mm-hmm. but an emergency medicine uh, pediatrician. And so they had some just common questions mm-hmm. about pediatrics. One of them is, and this happens to medics just in their lay life as well, the layperson life, they'll get phone calls from family members. I do from my sister mm-hmm. a thousand miles away. <laughs> One of my nieces has fallen off the counter, mm-hmm. and they've bumped their head on the tile, and do I go to the ER? Mm-hmm. How do you pick through that when, yeah. when a patient comes to you in the ER? So the, the, there's fortunately a lot of great data now on head-injured kids, mainly because people want to figure out from the you know, hospital side or the EMS side which kids really have a problem. When you look at it, the thousands and tens of thousands of kids every year who hit their head, the percentage of those who actually have not just a bleed but a clinically relevant bleed, meaning that we need to call in the neurosurgeon to evacuate the blood, is very, very, very low. If you were a betting person, you could bet no bleed every single time for the rest of your career and, and probably be right. But the question is, how do you pick apart those? To start off with, it's where is the injury? Number one, what was the mechanism of the injury? How old is the kid? All those things kind of play into it. So if someone called me up and said, my son's in a Little League baseball game, someone threw a ball and it hit him in the head, right on the left side of his parietal area, uh, you're going to the ER, okay? If you're a skateboarder, you weren't wearing a helmet, and you fell off your skateboard and you hit the curb, you're going to the emergency department getting a CT scan. What are the most common causes of head injuries? We see are the little kids, right? They fall off the bed. My kids did that. They fall out of the crib. My kids did that. They fall out of the shopping cart. My kids did all those things. Now, those injuries, because kids' heads are so heavy, they're kind of like a torpedo, and they go straight down, and they hit their forehead, Right. If you look at all the forehead injuries in kids of that age, um, and, I, and again, you could take all the kids. If you, if you lined up all these kids with forehead injuries in front of me, and I just took one little look at them and kind of see what their affect was, and it, it's almost a nothing every time. The big forehead goose egg is typically not an issue. But I have the benefit in the emergency department of watching kids. In EMS, you don't. Right? right. So basically, you see a kid who's got a head injury who probably was a little altered and maybe even altered when you're there. But of course, in the time they get to me, they're sitting on mommy's lap and mom's crying and the kid's crying a little bit and they're kind of looking around. So I would say something like, let me do a physical exam, do vital signs. And then next thing you know, I'm just keeping them there for a couple of hours, right. even up to four hours. And now the kid's running around the emergency department and I say nothing to do. Okay, I have that that luxury of looking at heart rate. So, are they bradycardic? Are they hypertensive? Are you are you vomiting? Did you pass out? So I ask you know all the normal questions that we would ask, but then I have the ability of saying, okay, let's put it in context. Now, if you bring me a one month old who fell out of the whatever, a one month old shouldn't fall out of anything. So you're looking for other things, right? Mm-hmm. Kids of that age are always going to get a CAT scan. For the lay person, it's always best to you know, seek help. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger issue is when you go to a hospital, is their default to just say CAT scan for you? That's bad. Right. Because if you, those people have to know the data, which is that, and there's, it's, it's, it's very, very well structured that if you have this and this and this, you have a higher likelihood. So therefore you should get a CT scan. But even if you have a bleed, what do we do about it? Most of the time, Nothing. You have to have the epidural bleed, you know, that type of thing. Or So 
very, very few times you actually have to go to an emergency department to get your, your brain evacuated. But, but it's going to happen, mm-hmm. especially the people listening to this podcast. They're going to see the bad case. Yeah, uh, They just have to know how to recognize it. But I wouldn't, if I'm talking to the lay public, I would say that if your child passes out, bad, not good. If your child has vomiting, if your child's having a seizure, mm-hmm. th- those are you know, three, three bad things. A little personal story here. Last year, I was in Denver with my family, and my, my nine-year-old, he was eight then, went on a little zip line, and we had no cell service where we were. It was just me and him. My wife and my other kids were back at the apartment, and he jumps onto this little, like a little playground zip line, mini thing, and he slips and he falls, and he, he falls backwards onto the back of his head. He's completely unconscious, okay. and, and he's not really breathing well at all, so he's kind of very sporadic. So I have him holding my kid, I'm holding him like by, behind his neck, and I'm I'm like Noah, get up, get up. And he's not getting. He's not. Nothing's going on. And now his jaw's clenched. So I open up his airway. Takes a big deep breath, and then after about 45 seconds, he's, he comes back around. Mm-hmm. If I was anybody else, I would call 911. I didn't have cell service. But even if I did, I realized today I wouldn't have done it, only because I know what would have happened at this emergency department. They they would have done a CAT scan. So internally, my biggest fear is. Let's not take him to a place where they're going to do something that I don't want to have done. Maybe a bad way to think about it, but it would be helpful if parents knew the data so that they can actually ask for the right things at the hospital. Yeah. It's important. Back to this Facebook group. This was something that was told to me. I'd never heard it before. So one of the listeners of the podcast was taught this rule of five, and this was regarding febrile seizures. They were taught these five rules that febrile seizures are relatively harmless unless one of these five things are met. The kid is greater than five. The seizure lasted longer than five minutes. The temp is near 105. And the kid has had a fever for five or more days. Have you ever heard that? I haven't, but I, but I, I really like those principles because um, if you want to go through them one by one, I'll kind of explain to you. The kid is greater than five. Right, so, so typical febrile seizure that's the age range where you start to grow out of those. If you're around that age or older than five, it's typically not a febrile seizure. That's where that comes from. Seizure lasts longer than five minutes. Actually, we start to call it an, uh, an atypical seizure if it's like 15 minutes, but usually febrile seizures will subside on their own within five minutes. Mm-hmm. So if you're an EMS provider, EMS professional, when you get to the scene and the child's having fever and still seizing, because clearly it's been more than five minutes, until you got there, that's an, that's an issue. The medical director at my college for our program, he differentiates between febrile seizures and seizures with a fever. Mm-hmm. Right? Correct. Right. Because the term febrile seizure just kind of denotes that it's, it's just harmless, if you will. Remember back in the day when I first started practicing medicine, it was we did everything for these kids, even up to doing you know, lumbar punctures and blood work. And, and now... We, we almost do nothing. Unless you're, let's say, a female and you have a high fever, we'll check for a urinary tract infection. The days of blood work and CT and LP and all that, so those, are, those days are gone. Like, for example, if you have meningitis and you're seizing from that, boy, those seizures are very hard to get rid of. If you want a child in, in, who has a quote-unquote febrile seizure and you're giving a benzo, the fact that you're giving the benzo is an issue, meaning that you should start thinking it's not a febrile seizure. But if it's meningitis or encephalitis-associated seizure, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have to give multiple rounds of the benzo, let's say two, and then you're going to have to escalate to Keppra or something else. And by that time, 
this kid's probably not going to be breathing so well, so you have to start thinking intubation. So you should be able to very quickly, as, a, as an EMS professional, know what you're dealing with. And clue number one is child is still seizing when I'm in front of them. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Especially if they have a history of, if there's no other history, right? right. Temp is near 105. We don't really pay too much attention to the number, really, per se. But obviously, if you're going up to above 105, you should probably start thinking of, but there are plenty of kids who have that temperature who end up having a febrile seizure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a little less keen on that one, but sure. but still, a high temperature um, maybe has value. You think they're thinking value. meningitis with that number? Is that what that's about? No, because then, then, you're, then you're saying that if you have a 100 temperature that you can't have meningitis. Okay, yeah. and you, you know, you, you can't, that, that's, you, you'll see many more kids who have 105 who have a big nothing than, than not, but, and when you look at the pediatric literature, let's say on a female who's over the age of, let's say, a year, who has two-day history of a 103.5 or higher, that's when we start to say, hey, we, we should probably test a urine on that kid. Mm-hmm. There are numbers out there. Yeah, 105 is a high fever, but I wouldn't go just on the number. I would take all the other other items in, in, mm-hmm. in, in, at the same time. Fever for five or more days, I would say that the typical fever curve, and this is important, when you want to become expert at something, and when you want parents to trust you, that you know what you're talking about, you say to them, okay, this is day number one of little Johnny's bronchiolitis. Here's what's going to happen. It's going to get worse tomorrow. It's going to get even worse on day three, which will be the worst of the symptoms. But on day four, it'll get a little bit better. And on day five, it'll get even better. The arc is important. So if you're coming to see me in the ER and you're on day one and you're really bad, so I may think of you differently as if you say, hey, this is day three. I'll say, okay, if this is the worst it's going to get, I know tomorrow will be better. When you come in with a kid who has a fever for five or more days, I know that the arc is not following the normal viral arc. Right. That's, That's when I would get concerned. Because you're not thinking about bacterial or something else. Right. You're, you're thinking, typically what happens is that you have, you know, the uh, the kid who gets, you know, uh, it's 100 and it's 101 on day three, it's 104, uh, not eating, not drinking so well. And then day four, day five, they're getting better. And then all of a sudden on day five, boom, they spike up again. That's the kid who you say, now he's got a secondary infection that may be bacterial. So 100%, I would perk up the ears on, on a five-day fever who's getting worse instead of better. How about favorite meds for pain in pediatrics? Great. Let, let's start with the infant, right? You have a child who's got a fever. They're three weeks old. They go to the emergency department, and the doctor is going to do a lumbar puncture with no anesthetic, right, uh, which is horrifying. Happens around this country every single day. Why? Because someone has told us to think that kids at that age don't feel pain, and that's nonsense. Then you kind of move to the kid who's got, who spilled coffee on themselves, or hot tea, and they have this scald burn, scald injury all across their chest and their face, and they're screaming in pain, and, and we're not giving them the appropriate pain control because they're, they're one. Do I give narcotics to a one? Heck yeah, you know, because those, that kid needs it. In every hospital, in every state, in every city, you, you will find that the pediatric population doesn't get the right care. In the pre-hospital environment, it's just as bad. And why is it bad? Because the type of meds we carry require calculations that are very difficult. If you're giving fentanyl, the dose is going to be a fraction. It's going to be a zero point something usually. People are fearful of giving narcotics to kids for some odd reason. So I think we have to do a much better job. 
data has come out now from Denver and from San Antonio showing that if you give medics the volume, the right dose for the right age, they will actually give the drug dose five times more often than they used to give a drug dose. That was an important thing when I was researching uh, the advancements that you're making is that you're not only decreasing medication errors, you're increasing the number of people treated. Right. So there's a term for that. So, uh, and this happens in, in pediatrics. The most common error in pediatrics is an error of omission. Yeah. Little Johnny needs something, and you say to yourself, I'm going to push that to the next person. Uh, they're an SVT stable. They're talking to me. They had the vagal maneuvers that didn't work, and I want to give adenosine, but I'm 15 minutes away. Let them do it. I know this mindset because it was my own. Sure. It's a, it, <laughs> this is a pervasive mindset. Now the kid needs fentanyl. He's got a broken arm. He's screaming. He's three years old, and the hospital's only five minutes away. Let the hospital do it. No. Let's not let the hospital do it. And by the way, with meaningful use, this term called meaningful use, where they're going to look at you as a provider and say, okay, kid was in pain, you scored him a 9 out of 10, and you didn't give anything to reduce the pain, we're not going to pay you, EMS agency, um, because you didn't do the right thing for the patient. So that's coming. Like it's, it's already kind of here, but now with all the electronic medical records, they're going to be looking at every single patient, are we doing the right thing? So here, here's my overall principle on pain control. Fentanyl should be everyone's number one go-to drug. And intranasal, if given at the right dose, is very safe, has very few side effects, and you, you don't have to start an IV. I would go to 1.5 to 2 mics per kilo intranasal and start with that. So if you come to my emergency department today and you have sickle cell or what have you, a nurse will take fentanyl and squirt it up your nose, sometimes even before I walk in the room. So we've had, to, we've had to modify the system to let other people, our amazing nurses, do the job that the physicians, pediatric trained physicians weren't doing. So if it's bad in the children's hospital, and it's been shown, I mean, look, go look at all the history of all the data that, you know, even a children's hospital, we don't give the right, and then if you're black, you don't get pain control at, at the right amount. There's a very, very big problem. We have to change the system Fentanyl, should, I think, should be the go-to drug. Morphine takes about 20 minutes to peak. Not good. It's got side effects, histamine release, all that. Morphine's going away. I think we're, it's, we're, we're in the middle of burying it now. Then you have other drugs now that are coming into play, which is things like ketamine for pain. We could do a whole other podcast on the benefits, but also understanding how to give ketamine. The logistics is very important. You know, there's other medications that, that we use, but in the field... Um, I would say for severe pain, it's really fentanyl. I think in a close to it's uh, ketamine where, with, with morphine kind of slowly, ultimately fading away over the next couple of years. I was curious to see if you would bring up ketamine, and I get that that is a completely longer talk. Is there an age at which you would not give ketamine? Yeah, I think in the really younger children, you know, in the kids, like let's say under six months of age, I think ketamine is very safe. We've been using it ever since... I've been doing this for, what, 18, 19 years. I can tell you that we've been using ketamine since I've ever started. The pediatric physician group has the most experience with ketamine than any other physician. And we've been using it very safely. But now that I understand how it's packaged you know, really well, I understand exactly how it's supposed to be given. So let's go through a few, a few major points. Sure. If you're going to give ketamine IV, you have to give it over 60 seconds. 
mm-hmm. one whole minute. So I look at my watch, and in order to give something over 60 seconds, you have to have enough volume that A, when you're pushing it through the IV, it's, it's, you can see the volume going down over a minute. But also, if the volume is not big enough to even get through the tubing to get into the patient, and then you come up with a flush right behind it, then you're basically kind of bolusing the, it's an IV push, essentially. So the only way to do that in young children is to have a larger volume. And the only way to do that is to have a very, very dilute form of ketamine. If you poll every person, every agency out there using ketamine today, they'll say we have the 100 milligram per ml, the super concentrated version, which is supposed to be IM only. But you start with ketamine as IM for excited delirium, and then next thing you know, someone says, hey, they're using it for pain right next door, we should use it it too, and the volume is like 0.2, 0.1. How do you give 0.1 over a minute? You can't. Uh, and, and, and I should even say, if you're giving it for pain, there's great data to show you should probably be giving over 15 minutes. Mm. So put it in a, in a 100cc bag or a 50cc bag and run it in over 10 or 15 minutes. I really love ketamine, but I think that like, if you look at my protocols, for pain, we put it into a 100cc bag uh, and we run it in over time. And another one of my agencies, I actually have the 101. It says on it, excited delirium, intramuscular only. Then we have another one that says, this is the 10 milligram per ml one. That's for RSI, that's for pain. So you have to understand how to do it. And once you understand it, it's, it's an amazing drug. But it, it's a drug that's waiting for someone to make a tenfold error. The good news is you can make a tenfold error and nothing bad will happen. Hmm. The biggest thing to remember with ketamine is that if you give it fast, you put the patient into laryngospasm sometimes. And that means that their vocal cords are slammed shut. They're looking right at you. And it's effectively like they're choking because they can't, they can't breathe in or out, and you try and bag them. And if you're overzealous with the bagging because you think you're going to squeeze it, you're not going. It's just going to go right into the stomach, and they're going to start to throw up on you. So you have to know how to bag that person. And there's something called a Larson's maneuver, where you take your finger right under the the earlobe, and you'll feel your jaw on one side of your finger and the base of your brain on the other side of the finger, and you just you just push like you're trying to connect your two fingers through the head, kind of thing. Yeah. It's called a Larson's maneuver, and that'll undo usually should undo uh, laryngospasm with bagging that's not squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. It's a, it's a slow squeeze until the, the vocal cords open up. And if that doesn't happen, you have to paralyze. So, you know, if, if you're giving ketamine wrong every single time, you will see a case of laryngospasm, and that's going to make you have the pucker factor big time. You have an hour with a group of paramedics. What are... And you may have already mentioned them, but what if you could only tell them, you know, these three things, take these three things back to your, mm-hmm. your service. Mm-hmm. And you knew that it was going to be spoken like gospel and everybody was going to buy in. Mm-hmm. What would those three things be? I would say that the number one most important thing is to recognize the position that you're in to make a difference for people and to be respectful of that position. And, you know, someone like Dr. Paul Pepe, who, you know, uh, who's really a mentor for me, is really kind of told me a lot of great stories about this, but you're going to be in a home of somebody whose uh, spouse is, is in cardiac arrest. And you're going to look around that room and you're going to see pictures of the grandkids and pictures of the house they used to live in 20 years ago and maybe a bouquet of flowers. And all of a sudden you can look around and you're going to say, wow, I'm in someone's, in, in, their, in their deepest, kind of like closest place that no one's ever been, right? No one goes into someone else's bedroom. What you do at that moment will have an impact on that spouse. What you do at that moment will have an impact on someone's family. 
respecting what your role really is is a huge thing. And because once you once you have that understanding of what we're really doing, it'll change what you do. When I see people tweeting or taking pictures of a scene or what have you, it really bothers me. I don't want people to be in this profession for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. We should go do things and never tell anybody we did them, right? Mm-hmm. I don't go home and tell anyone anything that I did because that's the expectation is that that's what we signed up for, right? The whole Parkland shooting that happened in my town, that's not something for us to start to go around and say, hey, you know, uh, we did exactly this. Like internally, we'll look at those things. No one's going and taking pictures and, and saying this or that. We, so I think that's the number one thing is that if you sign up for this job, you have to have respect for what it means and for what, how you're impacting people. I think that's, that's the biggest thing. And then the, the second thing, just to kind of roll off of that, is there are ways to speak to people, your patients for only, let's say, 20 minutes, to really have an impact on them. And this is actually a talk that I give. It's called the fond farewell. It, it starts with, how do you treat patients? When you walk into a room and there's, let's say, six people around the loved one who's not feeling well, how do you enter that room? Do you enter just kind of oblivious to those people and you just attend to the sick person? Or if you have a few moments, do you stop and say, my name is Peter, I'm here to help you. What's your name? Oh, John. And John, you are the, well, I'm, I'm, I'm her son. Okay, nice to meet you. And you are, and you go one by one and you, you take the time to introduce, get to know who's going on. Tell me what's going on with your mom. That's a very important uh, concept, number one. Then there's, do something special for that person during your time with them. Hold their hand. Ask about their grandchildren. Uh, care, right? Mm-hmm. W- without manufacturing it. Like, sure. in other words, yeah. you, you, need to, you need to really want to know about wh- who this person is. And it shouldn't be related to what the, the pro- their medical problem is today, right? Yeah. And then step three of that is the fond farewell where when a, an EMS person or a crew ro- rolls into a hospital, and the doctors and nurses descend upon the patient, what happens to that paramedic? They're kind of boxed out. They kind of slowly back out of the room and they're forgotten. They're never allowed to say goodbye. And it it comes back to the closure thing, right? So what we say is you must, you must say goodbye to the the patient. And the way to do it is before you get into into the hospital, you're gonna say something like, Mrs. Jones, we're rolling up to the hospital here. It's a great hospital, and we know everybody here. I'd take my family here, if that's true, you would say that. And you would say, when we get in here, there's going to be a whole lot of people who are going to help you, and uh, I want to say goodbye now. I really hope that you get better soon and that you get out of here and you're healthy and uh, you know, hope you're going to do really well. So I'll say goodbye now. Or you wait until you get into the hospital, into the room, and you make it a point to actually go back to the patient and say, and not just for a signature, right? As physicians, if there's any physicians listening to this, we need to understand that we need to enable that that closure. And as a paramedic or an EMT listening to this, you need to understand that you, you have to finish the circle with that patient and say goodbye to them and wish them the best. And if it's a family member, say, I hope your child gets better. There are the superstar medics who even will hand them a, a card and say, here, this is my information or my, my department's information. Or is it okay if I follow up with you tomorrow? Because yeah. I want to check on how you're doing. Yeah. And then actually do that, wow, even better. I think I, I kind of was long-winded there, but 
if I were to impart anything, it's really how do we take care of people without focusing on the medicine of it? Right. That's the key. It wasn't long-winded, and I was thankful for everything you shared, and I guarantee you people are listening, absorbing everything. Nothing is lost. Everything you're sharing is very, very useful. You brought up Parkland, and I asked you if it, if you were wanting to talk about that. Um, it seems early. Mm-hmm. Any reflections on that yet? Yeah, I mean, uh, th- this this was um, th- this was personal um, because we have um, yeah, it, it is very raw still. Um, what I want to start off with is that you know I work with a, I mean amazing group of people. I mean, when, when you look at um, when you look at what heroes are as physicians compared to what you know EMS professionals do in the field is just it's just for me mind boggling. I don't think that what I do holds a candle up to what you guys do out in the field. This was proven in Parkland because when you have 40 EMS police SWAT in that building without fear of their own lives and this is I'm talking Coral Springs Police Department Coral Springs SWAT, Coral Springs Parkland, the fire and EMS. My fire chief put on a ballistic vest to go and, and get kids, the kids who were walk, the walking wounded and the kids who were hurt. When I reflect and I see how fast those kids were taken off of the scene by people who have never been in the situation before, but we've practiced quite a bit, that they actually did that and we got the kids who we could save, and we saved every single one of those. I, I will always remember that as the number one thing that, that I'm proud of is that I work with people who, um, you know, that sacrifice because I don't see myself as as, as someone who, you know, maybe I'm not gonna say that I wouldn't do that, but the fact that they that they did that so easily and, and selflessly is something that is very powerful for me. So that that's kind of like my my biggest kind of feeling there. Now, it was it's very emotional for me because I knew and I know the family members of the children who lost their lives. I went to high school with one of them. There are physicians who we know in the community who lost their children. And so when you're on the scene and people are texting you, everyone listening to this will know that when you're like uh, when you're working and you're getting texts from people you don't you you completely disregard them. My wife, who's an amazing person, every time I'm working in the emergency department, she like almost refuses to try to even text me or call me because she knows that I'm in the zone. Okay, we've all gotten those texts. Hey, you know, Ginger, I need to know about X, Y, or Z, and you disregard it. So here I am on scene. I'm getting all these texts from people who know me, who know my wife, and it's Have you seen this person? Have you seen that person? Sending me pictures. And I had to stop for a moment and, and it really hit me saying, oh my God, this is, these are our friend's children. And that was very, that's very hard for me. I mean, to be at funerals of, of these kids and having to watch parents bury their own children, um, it has been very, very painful. But I'm surrounded by a whole lot of people who, who have been checking in and, and caring. But more importantly, all of my crews and my medics who were on the scene who, who did all, they're hurting, they're hurting a lot. And um, they need that, all the support from, support from random people is awesome. You know, where if someone texts you and say, hey, just thinking about you, hope you hope, hopefully you're okay. Uh, that's, that's powerful, it's meaningful. And so I've learned a lot about people in this last couple of weeks. I've learned a lot about people who do extraordinary things for people that they don't know. 
I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a glass half full type of type of guy. I recognize that a lot of goodness is coming out of people in a time where you would think that there is no goodness to actually be had, and there and there is. And so, it's been very hard. My wife graduated from that school. She was the first class. She was the president of that class. She helped name the school. She's having a very very difficult time. There's a lot of emotions that a lot of people have, but mostly what I want to end on is if you're a family out there who's lost a child, none of us will understand what that means. Nobody will understand what that means. When I look at what happened to me and my you know, my grieving and all that type of thing, it, it, it's nothing compared to what these families have gone through. I, I wish them strength. I, I send my love. For me, when I, when I look back at, at the hurt, it's not, it's not me and it's, not, it's nobody except the people who lost a child and, or, or a husband. That's how I'm able to continue forward in a way that's positive by understanding that this is not about me or my feelings. Although we have to look at those things, I, I really wish the best and I hope for the best and I wish them a lot of strength to, to those families who have gone through something that no one should ever do, which is lose a child. I should in there, but I want to say to you, in thinking about my medic friends that work for you, mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you're their medical director. I'm mm-hmm. glad that they went into that call and all of their calls with uh, confidence. And you're mm-hmm. giving them that. You're mm-hmm. giving them confidence and you're giving them a little swagger. Like, we know mm-hmm. what to do here. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, listen, I, I appreciate the comment, but um, I'm not sure I have much to do with that. I'm there for support. Our fire chief, my EMS chief, Juan Cardona, you know, uh, fire chief, Chief Babinick. You know, I can go down the list. Mike McNally. The, 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 these people are, are prepared. These people are professional. I thank them for allowing me to be part of this. It's a really a special, special a profession to be in. But when you're working with people who are that good at what they do and are so humble about it, if you look at my fire chief uh, or my EMS chief or the incident commander, Mike Mosier, your chief Mosier, he was the incident commander on that, on, that, uh, on that day. You won't find anything about what he did that day. or He'll just give you a smile and he said, that's, that's what I'm meant to do. I mean, you got to tip your hat to people like that who are not looking for a TV camera, who are not looking for kudos. So not only are they professional and do great things, but they're they're actually very humble about it. I've learned a lot just from being around this group of people. As a physician, yeah, we're the med- I'm the medical director, and all of us medical directors are kind of big picture people. To do the actual work and to see what they see and do what they do, I don't hold a candle to that. I appreciate your comments, but I think we, we should we should leave the credit with, with what they do on a day-to-day basis, yeah. I appreciate that I had you for an hour and 15 minutes, but I know you've got a plane to catch. Yeah. Uh-huh. This this is a dream for me to be able to talk to you and, and get this like one-on-one time with you. Yeah. And the cool thing about the podcast is that the listener will feel like they got one-on-one time with you too, so uh-huh. I appreciate it. Well, it's funny. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, um, I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm a huge fan of podcasts in general, and... I thank you for allowing me to, to speak here because for many years I, I felt like nobody was listening. And to all the people out there who have an idea, and the beauty of it is that I get called all the time now from people who have an idea. And I take everyone's phone call and I'll answer everyone's email and I'll answer everyone's texts almost to a fault. It's nice that you can actually go and do something and keep working at it. Look at Eric Bauer, right? What they've done with Flight Bridget and this amazing conference that they had here, that they're having here now is that everyone needs to realize you be passionate about something, 
go for it. Keep it's not an overnight success. Keep working at it. But then, you know, at some point, and here we are, eight years later, where I have the privilege of sitting in front of someone who has a reach of thousands of people. You know, that doesn't happen overnight. But it's so nice now on the back end of it to to actually uh, where where people want to hear what you have to say. Um, it's really awesome. So I I praise you for what you're doing, and I thank you for having me on the show and. I thank Corey Ricketson for... Uh, I was about to do the same. Thank okay. you, Corey, for connecting us. I appreciate right. it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, my, it was my pleasure. Wait, don't go yet. First, there's show notes at medicmindset.com. The show notes will get you to YouTube videos that Dr. Antevi has made. And second, I've got a little bit more audio left for you where he gives advice on how to proceed if you are the big picture thinker. You have a big idea and you want to execute. Um, he's got advice for you. And also, I want to thank my amazing wife, Allison, who puts up with me and all my, all my crazy ideas and my passions. But the, the phrase that behind every, every good man is, is, is an amazing woman, she, she really is. I, I definitely married up, let's put it that way, because <laughs> I went from someone with an idea to someone who actually is operationalizing and actually making a difference. And it's, it, it's trust me, it's not because of, of me. It's... It's it's just a great team, so she she gets a lot of the credit. I heard you mention her earlier. I thought that was interesting because I didn't know that she had helped, like that she was involved in the development of this system. I don't I don't really I, I kind of tease a little bit, but I I don't really do much. I'm the guy who likes to see things five or ten years ahead. She uh, is very powerful, and she runs our company. So that, so Han Tebby, she's the CEO of. She manages lots of people, uh, great people. She talks to people from around the country. She negotiates everything. She she is the the machine behind Hand Heavy. Uh, I'm just a face of it, right? When, when you look at anyone who's starting anything, if you have an idea, if you don't know how to operationalize that idea and you're just an inventor or an idea person, it doesn't work. I'm not the logistics or the operational person at all. I'm not. And if there are people who are out there who have a great idea, tag yourself up with someone who's an operational person and then work on it together. Very few people are like Steve Jobs, who have the vision and the operational savvy and could be marketing. Those people don't, don't exist. Right. And most people in healthcare are the innovators, vision people, and so have all these great ideas, but there's no outlet. Mm-hmm. So I've had a dollar for every person who called me and said, I have a product that I created and you know, I would love for you to see it. And, and I see it, then I said, what's the next step? And they kind of look at me blankly, you know. Everyone needs someone like Allison in, in their in their lives. Um, that that's the secret is that to get the trajectory that you want, you really have to be just more than just the idea person. And so, I've learned a lot from my wife. Ninety eight percent of I think of what we've done here is attributed to her. So. so, life advice from Dr. Antevi is marry up. Marry up, marry up, and then recognize what your strengths are, and what your weaknesses are. So I can lead a team to a big change, but what I typically would do is I'll, I'll bring all the right stakeholders to the table, and then we'll make this major positive change by having the right people on board. Those are the, the kind of ideas that I've, I've had to learn about my own self over the last probably five years more so, where my strengths are. So if someone comes, calls me tomorrow and says, hey, Pete, we want you to do X, Y, or Z, I immediately know if I'm the right person for that or not. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, people have to know where their strengths are to understand how to succeed. I've learned that through this process of being a medical director, being a physician, being a father, and now being a, a founder of a company. You have to know who you are in order to be, become successful. And I think that's, uh, I'm very, very happy that I've finally realized that. And he jumps onto this little, like a little playground zipline, mini thing, and he slipped. I think that may have been housekeeping. Hang on. Okay. I can't wait to hear what happens. <laughs> Did you knock? Oh, no, I was knocking next door. Okay. But... No, it's okay. We're talking to Martians. Who? We're talking to Mars. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm kidding. I tell him I said hey. Hey, hey. <laughs> that was great. Tell him I said hey. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. I'm having a blast with this.